90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm I mean, doing much better. I'm relaxed should I, now. Sh- exactly. Should I say, <laughs> Dr. Lehman, how are you doing now? <laughs> yes. So uh, against their better judgment, they did pass me on my defense last week. Suckers. I mean, congrats. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's a that's a nice monkey to have off your back, um, isn't it? Yes, very much so. Now it's just, you know, a, little f- a few edits and... Uh, it's actually really nice because you used to have to, you know, print it out on the special paper and go yeah. and deposit this physical copy, and now it's all just upload a PDF. Wow, seriously, I still had to do that. I had to do both things, upload and still walk to the bowels of the library and deposit my, my thesis there. Yes, I was really glad I wasn't going to have to go back. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Get the special paper and deal with all of that. So that was great. Uh, but Excellent. Well, congratulations. Oh, thanks. So uh, what have you been up to this week? Oh, just more field work. Um, so we wrapped up um, almost our last foray out into the field in our field methods course. So it was a very long weekend. <laughs> it sounds like it. Was it at least pleasant? Uh, well, it sort of was. Um, I know you've been out here, so we go to Kimball Ranch, this place in southern Oklahoma in where we actually have mountains, for real mountains, people, not fake mountains. Um, <laughs> but it was so foggy, you could not see 10 feet in front of your face. So my whole plan was to go and sketch this hillside and do this cross-section and then have them map in one spot from the top of this peak, and none of that happened because it was so foggy. <laughs> <laughs> So it felt more like fieldwork in Scotland than Oklahoma this weekend, but um, it was at least a pleasant temperature, so that was nice. Yeah, it's not bad. It's we, We've been breaking some record highs here, and yep. we've actually had some uh, Chinook winds the last couple of days, crazy fire oh. spread, and very, very high wind speeds. Oh, man. We could do a whole, uh, a whole thing about Chinook winds. I, I think I, we're going I, to have to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a lot of indigenous stories for listener Martin about those. <laughs> <laughs> But we're actually really excited today. We're going to have a, an interview with Dave and Lauren Hirschap. So, hi guys, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, how's it going? Doing great. How about you? Good. We're excited to be on here. This is our first podcast ever. Yeah. Oh, awesome. <laughs> well, we are definitely excited to have you because, as you've heard me just talking about, um, I'm teaching field methods currently right now too. And so, when John said he wrangled you guys on the show, I got inordinately excited. <laughs> Cool. Awesome. <laughs> I'm jealous. Except your foggy experience doesn't sound that fun. But no, it was it was it was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, man, these kids have only been out here like two times, and now they can't even see ten feet in front of them. This was probably not the best, but <laughs> it was can't good. It, it burned off. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but well, like Shannon said, you know, I was able to track you all down at AGU and ask you if you wanted to come on the show. But before we get into why it was hard to track you down, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Do you just kind of who you are and what you end up doing? Yeah, I guess I could start. Um, I mean, we're, we're here, I think, mostly because of our company, Real Science Innovations, mm-hmm. and uh, our invention, the, the Brunton Axis, which is the latest novel transit. Um, 
<laughs> but yeah, I guess my my background, uh, I'm the geologist of the crew, and I uh, did my undergrad at Wheaton College up in Illinois. Uh, even though I grew up in New Mexico, uh, I went up to Wheaton before I realized I wanted to study geology. And so the closest outcrops were like three <laughs> hours away. So yeah. our, our field experiences involved long trips, um, but really cool old rocks. Um, uh, yeah, I guess I started school thinking I would be pre-med, like I think a lot of geologists do or something. And you take your first geology class and fall in love with it. And uh, so, yeah, I was hooked. It was a good fit for me. And um, I actually studied geology and theology as an undergrad. And people always oh, wow. joked that I should be, become an archaeologist and study the stone tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on or something. <laughs> um, but I, I did not do that. Um, I did my master's at CU Boulder uh, and studied tectonic geomorphology at that point. And uh, that was a really cool, gosh, rapid two years of um, going over to Taiwan. That's where my field area was. And basically the big question there was, can erosion cause earthquakes? And did a lot of field work, a lot of structural geology, geomorph. Uh, overall great experience. But talk about doing field work in a challenging place, um, having grown up in the West, going over to a jungle and trying to do field work where you couldn't see rocks through all the vegetation. Yeah. Um, that, was, that was tough, and it pretty much rained constantly. Um, but beautiful country, oh, man. awesome mountains, which was really what drew me to geology in the first place, place probably just uh, interest and love for mountains, wanting to understand how they work. And Taiwan is one big growing mountain range that was a great project for me. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my academic background. Um, I guess I could stop there and let Dave talk a little bit about his. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, I'm actually East coast. I was born and raised in New Jersey and I, uh, grew up kind of running around in the woods, poking black bears with sticks and doing lots <laughs> of fishing and, you know, was sort of a natural, uh, biologist as a kid. Um, and I went to a small school there, a liberal, liberal arts school called uh, Ramapo College, and uh, got into biology and quickly found that, um, you know, it was just a natural fit, and then started thinking about teaching um, with, uh, with a friend of mine that was going there and enrolled in the same program, and we both became teachers, and really did that because we had some really inspirational teachers. Um, we went to the same high school and then the same college, and we thought... Um, you know, the way that they inspired us might be something that we would want to do for students in the future. Um, and I uh, went and did my undergrad in biology, and uh, I think the millisecond that I graduated in 2000, packed everything I could fit in my pickup truck and said, I am sick of the rain that occurs for about two or three weeks straight here <laughs> in New Jersey. I'm heading west. Um, and I had taken one trip out west before and had seen uh, the desert. And was just intrigued by it and wanted to go there and live there. And so my friend and I moved and uh, we landed in Colorado. Um, and and uh, I eventually met Lauren there. And uh, we actually, we met uh, in front of a map. Um, there was a girl standing in front of this um, old map that had, you know, naturally, it had been surveyed by water, of course, and by ship. And so the coastline was really distorted and 
Um, I saw it from across the room. I actually saw it before I, you know, I noticed the map before I noticed Lauren. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, and then, uh, Ouch. you know, sort of found myself <laughs> gawking at this map and just enamored at it, how awesome it was, and then realized that this girl I was standing next to was not so bad herself. And... Um, <laughs> And, uh, you are, know, you sure, I, are you sure you're not a geologist, Dave? That sounds like you know, a Well, I am line. unofficially <laughs> definitely a geologist now. Um, <laughs> By virtue of marriage. And yeah, the exactly. sheer amount of rock climbing that we do together, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I uh, only have my, uh, my bachelor's in science with a few extra uh, courses in GIS. I have my certificate through Penn State. Um, and, you know, I'm still dabbling with the idea that I might want to finish that because I have seen and witnessed the power of GIS and do um, use it with my students, even in the high school setting. So I've taught high school now for almost 15 years, um, and that's going really well. But I've actually learned to love all the sciences. And, in fact, I really enjoy teaching physics and geology way more than biology, although I have two biology oh. classes now. So, Wow. Hmm. You know, as a public school teacher, you end up, teaching all of it and I've learned to love you know subjects that I didn't when I was doing my biology undergrad work I, that's kind of the the fun part of getting into secondary ed I think too I have a friend that did a very similar thing I mean she was a geologist but she teaches physics and man she loves it so much oh yeah it's fantastic I mean I had a catastrophic um, failure today with I had a whole whopping two students in my uh, physics class I'm at a small <laughs> high school here in Wyoming and we're making a wave pendulum and I uh, I set them up with the basic parameters of how they work and they were really excited and uh, you know before I I let them work for a few days and then suddenly looked over at them and realized that we had a major a major failure all the pendulums were on on V strings and they weren't going to swing straight and so <laughs> oh, I said hell. we need to look at the math and so today we uh, we played some really sad Michael Bolton love music and cut all the old pendulums <laughs> off and started restringing them. And then they started to realize how annoying it was going to be because every, every pendulum, as they get shorter, has to be one oscillation faster than the one left of it. And they realized that tuning every single pendulum is going to take them about 25 minutes and um, it's going to be really frustrating. So we started over. And they actually loved the fact that we caught our mistake before we had gone too far. And it was great. It's a really great learning experience for those two kids. That's awesome. Say, that, that sounds exactly like the research process. <laughs> you get a ways yeah. into it and say, oh, no, we have to back up. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, just reapproach it so with uh, a new pair of glasses, and they're excited. You know, it still may fail, but at least we're, we're reveling in the moment now thinking that it's going to succeed. But who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely playing Michael Bolden music, though, when I get my next, you know, grant rejection. Awesome. Yeah, it, it worked pretty or, well. Or exam. For about yeah, the first yeah, 20 minutes. That. Yeah. <laughs> That's excellent. Um, so you guys are in Lander, Wyoming then? We are. Is that yeah. where you you work now? or? Well, it's kind of a long story. We moved to Lander in September, just last fall. Uh, we were in Durango for the 10 years before that. Right. Um, yeah. I had kind of... Well, it, I guess it's almost similar. So we moved to Durango those 10 years ago um, without jobs, just a sort of geography over career sort of uh, 
decision, awesome. which we seem to do a lot, which is what we did here for, for the lander move. We've always, um. we, we do, we have, every time we've moved, we have constructed a spreadsheet with all the criteria that the potential town may hold. And uh, actually, we didn't this last time. We didn't put a spreadsheet well, together. the decision was pretty because, easy. Yeah. yeah. Because but, Brunton's here. Yeah, so we, we right. I guess the, the backstory for how we got to lander um, starts back in Durango, because... Uh, Basically, I after grad school, I worked for a few years on and off with the Colorado Geological Survey in Denver. This is when we were still on the Front Range, um, and liked what I was doing. But we just we weren't a great fit for the whole Front Range um, craziness yep. of Colorado. And we, so we wanted a town. We wanted to move to a town where we could still potentially find uh, fulfilling careers, but also have all the outdoorsy things around us that we love to do and good climate. And so. Yeah, Durango was a great fit, and I worked for a, a year at a tiny oil and gas company doing coal mine methane huh. capture. Um, but when that started to get more conventional, I found a job at Fort Lewis College. And so that's where I was for the last nine years. Um, I started out as their lab coordinator for the geology department, and which really was like wearing eight different hats, <laughs> juggling <Yes. laughs> tons of different responsibilities for the department. Um, all the while teaching also. Uh, and that, that gradually evolved into more and more increased towards 100% teaching. And so I became a lecturer for the last four years that I was there. Uh, and that's really what has provided me with the teaching, the, the geology teaching and the field geology teaching experience. Um, so I taught just about everything um, from intro classes to natural hazards to natural resources, uh, to GIS of all levels, uh, and then also our intro field methods class, which it sounds like it's what you're teaching, Shannon, right now? Right. Like an yep, intro. that's exactly, it's yeah. intro field methods. Yeah, mm-hmm. ours was for sophomores, typically, uh, pretty oh, early see, on in their time Oh, that's interesting, because ours is... Yeah. Yeah, ours is for seniors, so I've often yeah. gone back and forth. It seems like they do it, you know, colleges do that one way or the other, and mm-hmm. I'm not... I don't know which side of the fence I come down on and when the best time to teach that is. Yeah. So. Well, ours was kind of both. This, this, the field methods class was just a little two-credit kind of fall semester of the sophomore year endeavor. Mm-hmm. And then our students also typically, well, they were required to do field camp and right. usually did it with us. And so that was a, a four-week, four-credit uh, class in the spring, actually in May. Um, it used to be midsummer, but we switched it to May, which is right at the end of the semester for us. Um, so for our, so our students kind of do both. It's we bracket it. Okay. Um, finding that it's helpful to have them at least familiar with basic field techniques before they launch into <laughs> yes. their more technical classes and um, get out there on field trips, and then they can use those skills that they get from that sophomore class. Um, but yeah, I also was fortunate to get awesome. to teach field camp, even when I was the lab coordinator for the department. Um, That's excellent. <laughs> and so yeah, I. I I keep always losing count, but I think I've taught eight summers of field camp, um, basically seven at Fort Lewis College, and then kind of one for my alma mater for Wheaton College in the Black Hills. Oh, awesome. And then I went back there again, so technically it, it's kind of like nine different field camps. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, oh. that's like my favorite thing to do. I love teaching field geology, especially field camps. Huh. 
I can tell we're absolutely going to have to talk about this afterwards because I'm the director for our field camp too. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> <Very> nice. <laughs> Which is uh, in Canyon. It's in Canyon City, Colorado. No way. Where, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We've got a really yeah. nice field station out there. So um, that's where we've we spent months yep. of our lives. We know Canyon City. Oh, I've yep. taken field camp <laughs> like, there as well. For our crew. Good old Canyon City embayment. Yep. yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. It's just fil- it's it's filthy with um, college geology students, man, oh, yeah. in the summertime. It's unbelievable. Yeah. For good yeah. reason. Yeah, in, yes, in exactly. kind of mapping out our marketing efforts for our company, I've made these grand lists of all of the field camps in the US and uh, it's you know, there's definitely the hot spots, it's no surprise. There's the Canyon oh, yeah. City yep. field camp hot spot and the southwest Colorado, the northern New Mexico, then sort mm-hmm. of the Lander to Jackson, sort of the Teton, um, Wyoming zones, uh, up into Montana. So yeah, it's it's kind of fun to come across other field camps out in the field. Not New Jersey? I just, Not New Jersey. No, no. no. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, man. <laughs> I, just, I just said to my class today, you know, I said, why do I always talk about the Southwest and, you know, out West? And they've already, they've already got it down. They said, because there's no plants to get in the way of the rocks. Yeah. Exactly yep. right. Yes. <laughs> and the climate usually is better, although... I had a field camp, I think it was 2015, where it, it rained every single day in May. Yep. That, that was yes. the oh, we, uh, I have ever experienced. We lost a road at our uh, at our camp in 2015, and I remember yeah. we were out in the field, and the high one day was 45. It was amazing. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah. I remember that year. <laughs> yes. It'll of course, it was 107 last year. <laughs> wow. Great. <laughs> So you all have mentioned a couple times your business, uh, Real Science Innovations. And I'm kind of curious, what led you to create the business in the first place? When did you start it? Oh, what year did did I actually start it? It was fall of 2013. <laughs> yeah. Um, you got it going. It was, I guess, so 2013. Um, I was actually teaching freshman physics classes. I was at um, a small project-based charter school in Durango. And... Um, doing the classic water rocket project, making water rockets out of water bottles and, um, you know, using a bike pump to shoot them up into the sky. And uh, I went through about two or three different launchers that you can buy through these science supply companies. And I had spent about $300 worth and had all of them fail and break. And finally just, um, oh, I forgot to mention earlier, I pretty much have an obsession with tools. So I went out to the giant tool shop um, (laughs) that is the garage and said, I am not going to emerge until I make a water rocket launcher that <laughs> is indestructible, um, works really well, and can, you know, bring rockets to super high pressures and, and you know, past bottle breaking um, pressures. And so um, I made this rocket launcher and, you know, I stenciled the skull and crossbones on it and uh, I called it the Titan and kids just had a blast with it. They could build huge rockets. <laughs> um, they could actually, a few of our rockets actually went close to a thousand feet up in the sky um, this thing was really strong, and and you know I used it for a few years, or um, you know prototypes before I got to the one that I really liked, and I finally just decided to you know maybe other maybe I should start a company, um, maybe we should start a company that um, can sell this thing. Maybe other physics teachers have had the same frustrations that I have, and um, so I started the website, got the URL, um, started Real Science Innovations, and it really just started with one product, the rocket launcher, the water rocket launcher. And 
um, just took off from there with, uh, you know, we don't have too many products on there now, but that was the very first, that's really where the idea originated. Yeah, I, I, I think was extremely busy. We both were so busy when you were starting that. And at first I was like, oh, I don't know if we can do this. I think we're both going to be too busy to run a business on the side. But once Dave had a platform for getting his ideas out there, I started to have other random geology-related ideas that I thought, well, I think this would be helpful, so I'm going to bundle together field supplies that field geology students typically need to buy and just have it as a one-stop shop so they can get their drafting pens and their color pencils and their map boards and their field book and rock hammer just by in one place. Um, and so we kind of did the same thing with, um, you know, just rethinking the Jacob staff a little bit, making something that's a little less destructible um, than existing <laughs> Jacob staffs and uh, rule of these blocks, groundwater models, kind of just everything has gradually gotten added. Yeah, I'm not sure what type personality it really is, but both um, Lauren and I are sort of incapable of using a product that doesn't work really well. And if something doesn't work really well, we just want to make a new one or reinvent the thing um, and make it easier for teachers, you know, maybe thousands of teachers that have the same problems, um, you know, down to colored pencil sets, simple as it can get, but they're color matched for a geologic map. So they look really great and they look professional. No one else makes those. They're not out there. Why aren't they out there? Why hasn't someone done it? Well, we'll do it. It can't be too hard. Uh. You that's know? it's really crazy um, because I co-host this podcast with a guy that's just like that. <laughs> yeah, so you know you're talking about this tool obsession that sounds familiar. And then I I know one of the first years that the new field camp was in operation, uh, when I was out there, we had bought this seismic energy generator. It's called a portable energy generator. It was a glorified mechanical hammer that had a 40 kilogram weight. <laughs> and the initial design of this thing was just awful. And I remember being out there until the wee hours of the morning for several nights in a row, just tearing this thing apart and completely rebuilding it because it was horrible and I didn't Great. want to use it. Uh, yeah. So I, th that resonates very much with me. Looking at the products on your website, you can definitely tell uh, they're all really well designed. And I mean, those, those rule of V's blocks that you mentioned, for example, are I gorgeous. I know, that's what I was just looking at too. I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> those are probably our latest edition. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, something I was using, you know, teaching my students, and we didn't have a good set. So, I was, again, I I told husband to go down in garage and make some <laughs> interesting <laughs> blocks that would visualize the rule of these. Uh, and uh, he emerged with some pretty good ones. And so. she's just lucky to be married to someone that it's literally therapy. You know, I'll come home from a 10-hour teaching mm -hmm. day. And I'll say, hi, Lauren, where's my glass of wine? Run out to the shop, and I actually won't emerge <laughs> until I've made something. And it might not be anything that's useful, but it might be useful. And it just, I need to be building, making, fixing. It's just, you know, my dad taught Man, me that early great. on. I grew up watching him in the shop, and, and that is my form of therapy. Man, my husband, the same thing. I said, I need these strike and dip blocks, okay? So you need to make me a whole bunch of these things where I can change them and, you know, they need to be non-magnetic and all this stuff. It was, yeah. yeah. 
I think nice. he's he's probably annoyed with me by now, but <laughs> 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 but that's okay. I'll just start shopping your website more. <laughs> cool, awesome, good. <laughs> uh, yeah, these ge- these geology colored pencils. Oh man, I remember the first year that I saw a student like whipped out that roll case with all those USGS approved colors. <laughs> And like everyone at field camp just like bum rushed her and was like, "Oh, where'd you get that?" And then all of them freaked out that they had to buy them or something. So nice, awesome. Um, was it yeah, from so our, I've sent, I've, our site? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Really? Yeah. Oh cool. Mm-hmm. I didn't even yeah, know was, that was, those had any fans. <laughs> oh man, are you are you <laughs> kidding me? The students oh, really goodness. take pride in their colored pencils and they do a much better job. They, they really love to protect do. them and keep them yeah. sharpened. And... Oh, I thought I kind of thought so it was funny. a hokey idea. Oh, That's good no. <laughs> it was the best. Everyone freaked out about it. And it's like all these kids who aren't ever going to map again in their lives, you know, <laughs> and they're still super excited about it. But it, it is the red swing line stapler of geology. At <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I spent oh, hours, absolutely. probably days, like color testing, trying to get the exact match to, to the, okay, at least what's what in the AGI ask. for the conventions. <laughs> I ordered like hundreds of, Prismacolored colored pencils um, and just sat there trying to color match. And initially we had sets of like 120 and 60 and 30 and 14. And I think now we just have 30 and 14 because the 60 was just really not selling much. But Well, the real truth is it yeah. turned since adults got into coloring books about five years ago, they've actually created uh-huh. this weird colored pencil shortage worldwide. Yes. And so someone yes. would order the, the 80 colored pencil kit, and it would take us, we, we'd have one color on back order for six months. Oh, my God. So it just sort of wow. got out of hand. Yeah. That's not something oh, that's we awful. can make in the garage either. We're not going to start making colored pencils in the garage. Well, so Don't, I, never you know, say I, never. I see an opportunity here to combine these two things, the coloring therapy that adults are doing and your pencils, mm-hmm. you know, sell some yes. uncolored maps. You're right. Uh, well, you're, yeah. that is something that's on the back burner right now is another of my <laughs> harebrained ideas. Yeah, she's, Lauren's working on a geology coloring book. Yeah. We'll see. We'll oh, see if man. it materializes. <laughs> that's fantastic. I'm going to buy several of them just to put around the fireplace at camp. Nice. Like, yeah, that's kids. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> they'll color and they'll learn. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. but That's how you got to yeah, do it. You honestly, trick them into learning. <laughs> to give them credit, that idea, and originally the, the colored pencils, the geology colored pencils idea originally came from some of my students because we had been assigning maps and just let them choose whatever color they wanted. And they just look pretty awful sometimes. And so... <laughs> They said, well, why don't we, you know, why don't we try to color match? And so I did it for a project right next to campus in Durango. So I pulled together a bunch of different Cretaceous greens. And believe it or not, it actually helped the map, even though it was all green. It really made it look <laughs> professional and, like, conventional. As a geologist, you look at it and you're like, okay, we're in the Cretaceous. And That's so I've awesome. been using them for, for field camp for the last few years since since we put them together. And, yeah, I love them. The students love them. So sometimes hokey ideas turn into good, into good it's, things, I guess. It's <laughs> so true because I know we tell them every year, every year, you don't have to color your maps. Like that's not what this is about. Yeah. You know, you yeah. never, you never have to color your maps. And I don't think we've ever had anyone turn in a map that wasn't colored. Right. Like mm-hmm. they like to do it. <laughs> no like that's the nice finishing touch, but it's yeah. also that nice thing that makes it look like any other geologic map that you would see <laughs> hanging up yeah. somewhere or, you know, anywhere else. So yeah, are you are you counting funny. geophysicists in that? 
No, no, okay. I never do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we've gradually cut back on their their usage of colored pencils. <laughs> so you, you mentioned earlier this new pocket transit that you all have invented, at the Brunton Axis. And so I was really curious, what made you look at a Brunton? You say you can't stand to use a product that's not perfect. So, so what made you look at the, the traditional Brunton, Brunton pocket transit and say we have to do this better well i i think it goes back to my very some of my very earliest uses of the conventional brunton it back in field camp when i was a student in the black hills our very first project i remember arguing with my partners for probably at least an hour at the first outcrop because we couldn't (laughs) decide or remember or figure out how to measure strike of a really gently dipping surface. And that ring on the bottom of the conventional transit gets in the way with really shallowly dipping strike measurements. And we hadn't or couldn't really figure out, didn't remember the, the tricks to get around that. And um, it was just, we, we, and it also just rooted in the fact that we didn't really see it yet. We didn't really get strike and dip yet, even though we had probably by then had a week or two of, of sort of intro exercises. Um, and so as a student, I just remember the struggle I felt with, gosh, I, I think I'm a relatively smart person, but I can't really visualize or figure out quite what I'm doing with this tool <laughs> that looks like it's cool and fancy, but I just don't get all its bells and whistles quite yet. Um, but, no, you know, gradually I figured it out by, by the end of my field camp as a student was eight weeks. So by the end of my eight weeks of mapping in the Black Hills, I had kind of just accepted the tool and learned how to use my Brunton and went from there and mapped a lot in grad school, too. Um, my Taiwan stuff was really field-based once I could find rocks to measure uh, in the jungle. And um, so, you know, it, it wasn't really until I had to teach field geology to students of my own that I started to rethink and remember the struggles because... I try to put myself in their shoes and remember what it's like to be learning a new concept and skill set. And so probably about, I, I think the idea popped into my head right around the same time, actually, that Dave started the business and was working with his rocket launcher um, that summer and fall of 2013, I guess it was, um, it wasn't a particular group of students that did it. It wasn't that they were particularly like, some of them might even listen to this. You guys were inspirational. It wasn't that you were particularly dense or anything. Um, but just something about that group. Um, it was a summer August intensive where I spent every day, all day with them leading up to the fall semester. And just, I remember being like, well, why can't the Brunton do this? Why, what if the Brunton could take a measurement of strike and dip simultaneously? What if it could measure trend and plunge of alineation simultaneously? What if I didn't have to look through the mirror or, or you know, use a sighting arm to, to try to see things or level things? Um, and so I just started to, honestly, the idea kind of just sat in my head for a while. I didn't have time to do much with it, but you know, sometimes ideas just don't leave you alone. And mm-hmm. that one just stuck and it kept, I guess, 
putting pressure on me, I started to um, <laughs> like think about it at night. Like, well, what, what could this look like if I actually made a transit do this and this and this? Um, so yeah, I, um, I guess I sketched it up or attempted to sketch up what I had in my brain. And that, by that time, it was just about winter. And yeah, you just sort of <laughs> stepped up your... Um, how many times you poked me while we yeah. sipped wine and watched TV on the couch. <laughs> yeah. It started slowly with, uh, you know, I'm just kind of frustrated. And then it, you know, eventually turned into what if? And then finally the sketchbook came out <laughs> yeah. with possible dimensions and yeah. functionality drawn on there. And I think it was Christmas of that, like when we had like some actual downtime between our semesters. I remember fiddling with little cardboard pieces trying to see if, if I could get the hinge that I had visualized to work in the way I wanted it to and kind of figured out how to do it. And then the sketches happened and then really then, then Dave, I I gave him the idea and kept bothering him about the idea. And at first (laughs) the idea was that he could maybe just machine something out of wood um, or make something out of wood because that was, you know, with a carpentry background, that was the logical thing to do. Yeah, but things got more serious when I realized I could buy a metal mill to make this thing and get a really nice new toy and and learn all about machining because I had seen my father do a little bit of it, but I mean, mostly my background was working with wood. So I said, huh, I can get a vertical mill and start, you know, making chips fly. This sounds really fun. And, uh, you know, I did actually make the very first prototype out of wood, but I really quickly realized that it wasn't going to do what Lauren wanted it to do. So... Aluminum was kind of the natural material. Yeah, and so, yeah, that winter of 2013, 2014, you made a prototype pretty quickly with that mill, and that was a really cool moment to to kind of see the first block of aluminum turn into something with a hinge that can rotate in two axes and a, a hollow, you know, the hinge is also hollow, so you can sight through it. And so that's what takes away the mirror. And that was a really cool moment to see it uh, take shape. And we, we took the innards out of old Brunton's that I borrowed. <laughs> They're on long-term loan. <laughs> yeah, Brunton actually, the folks at the initial meeting actually made fun of us when they saw the innards of the, the actual compass. They said, uh, we haven't seen this stuff since like 1972. <laughs> the really old. How old is this? <laughs> but these were just parts that Lauren had stored up over the years from, you know, maintaining all the compasses uh, at work. You know, bits and pieces of old broken ones. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) That's great. That winter resulted in three total prototypes. uh, And it was difficult because it had to have all these moving parts. Really, it's simple as it is finished now, but it had to have all non-ferrous pieces to not affect that rare earth magnet needle. And so everything had to be either titanium or brass or aluminum, or there's a special alloy of stainless steel that's non-magnetic. So... And I didn't have any access to, to those fancy parts. So I learned how to use a really fancy tool and made something. I actually made three prototypes that Lauren could take out with students. And lo and behold, they actually worked with, you know, some tweaking. And a story I like to tell about that process before we go further is that we actually ran out of enough aluminum to make the third. And there were a lot of aluminum shavings in the garage from milling down the other two. And so Dave decided to 
start a smelting operation in our garage <laughs> with a hairdryer <laughs> and some charcoal. And so he melted down the aluminum shavings plus a a bunch of carabiners, yeah, and a bunch of old carabiners that were laying around. I was hell bent on finishing the third prototype, and it was Sunday, and I didn't uh, want to overnight the extra metal, so I just made a little blast furnace, melted it down, and I did anodize all three of them because I didn't want students' hands to turn black. And we call that last one the Jerry Garcia model because we tried to dye it red, um, and the different alloys in the aluminum because it was all different, you know, melted parts. It just it basically looks tie dyed. Um, but it is that's anodized. Awesome. It worked, but it looks really funky. It's my favorite one. I, that's the prototype Yo, I took yeah. to the field camps that summer. <laughs> we won't talk about the birds that tried to land in the bird bath, the acidic bird bath in the driveway that was electrified while I was anodizing these things. But that's a whole other story. Electric acid bath. Yeah. We're we're not in the anodization guy. business any longer. That's pretty. I say so. You anodize it yourself. That's anytime yeah. I've ever had parts anodized, I've always sent it out because I never have wanted to. That's a good call. Wanted to get into that myself. That's a good call. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's oh, great. So, so you made these three prototypes, and Lauren, you took them to field camp. Was yeah. it kind of an instant, like, we're really on to something here? Or was it a, a longer slog of iteration to get to you're on to something? But what did it feel like using the prototypes? No, I think our prototypes really, to me even that first one that emerged from the garage was a pretty instant, wow, this, this is going to work. And I didn't, and actually still don't know what it's sort of global potential is, but um, to me, it was, it was pretty immediate that this was something that it's actually what I had envisioned. It took the measurements in the way I envisioned. And when I started showing, showing it off to students um, that summer, and the following fall in my field classes, uh, yeah, they loved it. It uh, The field camp in the Black Hills was really the first student debut. Um, I was teaching for Wheaton's field camp again, and they were kind of in the middle of their field camp when I stepped in, and so they already were familiar with the conventional Bruntons. And it took a demo of maybe five minutes and we were at this outcrop with tons of really cool foliation and folding. And the few students, they, they actually kind of fought over the prototypes I had, but they picked <laughs> it up right away. It was amazing to see how they could measure things that I hadn't even thought about initially designing the axis, like uh, fold axes and interlimb angles of folds. Just everything about fold geometry was so much easier to measure. And they picked it up right away. And it was pretty cool to see the measurements also match those of the conventional Brunton. So I knew it wasn't just a totally bogus tool. It did what it was supposed to do. Um, right. So yeah, I was, I was really psyched about it from the start. And uh, we, we had patented it uh, before that summer's field camp. As soon as we kind of had a prototype, we knew, okay, this is something that's worth protecting. Uh, so we initiated that patent process and it's <laughs> that's a whole other subject that's still going on it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah but it's it's we've held the responsibility to to protect it fully and um so yeah it's been an adventure yeah the interesting thing is that it's a really intuitive and natural tool um and we've done a couple shows now and you know towards the end of the show 
hours in, maybe seven hours in, you know, you sort of let people walk up to the product and just play around. And we sometimes just stand back and say, no, you just try it out. And here are some dipping rocks. We usually have some really great rocks spread out across the table. And if someone's into structure or if they at least remotely know what they're talking about and they do field measurements, they actually just walk up and get it. They don't understand it all. You know, you have to, but they'll, you know, quite a few people will walk up never having, having seen a demo and they can measure trend and plunge pretty intuitively, which is really not something that you'll see people do with any of the other models that people have used for, for a really long time. Do you think that actually, so this is sort of my question because yes, everyone struggles so much with strike and dip. Um, just like Lauren was talking about earlier, you know, it's, it's not an intuitive thing and it takes a long time of using it. So our field camp six weeks. And so by the, you know, by the fourth week, it's pretty good. But I mean, do you think that this new Brunton still, you intuitively can make the measurement. Do you think you get that idea of what strike and dip is quicker using the axis? I hope so. That's part of its design is that it, when you're measuring strike and dip with the axis, you can visualize strike and dip right there at the same time. The, mm -hmm. the compass face is what you hold horizontal, so it's that horizontal reference plane. The mm -hmm. hinge itself, where the sighting tube is, is strike. It's a long strike. It's visualizing strike, that line of strike. And then depending on how you have the lid oriented, in some of the configurations, it's a perfect visualization of dip angle sort of the yes. angle between the compass face and the lid. Um, and so mm -hmm. as a teaching tool, I'm curious. I actually haven't gotten to use the final, the actual production model of the Brunton Axis, because oh. it just became available this summer. <laughs> I haven't gotten to teach with it yet. Um, and that's wow. part of the other side story we haven't really gotten to. But yeah, I'm, I'm really hopeful that as it starts to infiltrate colleges and universities and field camps, that students will get it faster and mm -hmm. won't, you know, won't get to the end of their field methods class or their field camp and still not really understand what they're doing, which has been pretty common. Yes, actually it is. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you, you've got the prototypes and you know that you're onto something and you started the patent process rolling. How does one approach a large company like <laughs> Brunton and say, we have a thing and do it in a, a responsible way to protect yourselves and try to get the company's attention. Yeah. <laughs> Snail mail. That was... Lauren's international paper, <laughs> paper letter. Everyone at Brunton it. thinks that's really funny. But yeah, I sent a paper letter <laughs> because I wanted to be formal about it. And I actually couldn't find anyone's contact info except for a mailing address. So I just stuck a letter in the mail. And, you know, we had... We had some options. We, we weren't quite sure. I, I think going to Brunton was our plan A because they have the name and the global market and everyone knows, well, everyone just calls it the Brunton. Um, right. And at that point in our lives, we just didn't want to disrupt everything about our careers to make this product ourselves uh, or find you know just a manufacturer and market ourselves. So, so yeah, we sent them a letter and just, briefly described our idea and our, our product and asked if they wanted to meet. And amazingly, that letter didn't get lost in the piles <laughs> of 
paper. <laughs> um, and they responded. Uh, and I think it took a few months to schedule something, but we met literally had kind of a shark tank day mm-hmm. where we walked in <laughs> this like power conference table that had Brunton in the middle of it. This huge, of course it was iron. So it's very magnetic. Anyway. Um, yeah. Sort <laughs> it was of the a big, beautiful magnetic table. Yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but yeah, the, the head honchos of Brunton and the two, so the engineer and production manager from Riverton, Wyoming, where they're still made, um, were there. And we, we really spent all day with them presenting and talking about our idea and where we could go. Um, so, yeah, that was it was a pretty intense day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but in the like, end, you know, they said, imagine. they said, look, uh, I think uh, we've been looking for sort of the next innovation with our company and. We've even been sending sort of probes out and about to look for designs that are out there, and this might be it. So we're interested, and so let's um, join together and make this thing. That's really cool. So, I mean, how much of the going to production process did they take over versus were you involved with? I mean, I'm sure there were some scaling and growing and some design for manufacturing pains in getting it to where it could be a, a mass-produced product, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we finally arrived at a licensing agreement where we, we wanted to stay involved and we didn't just want to out, like outright sell the idea. I don't think that would have been feasible anyway. Uh, so we, we arranged a licensing agreement and also sort of a verbal agreement that we wanted to stay as involved as possible. And the... So yeah, really the bulk of the investment in bringing it to a production model and you know obviously figuring out machining and improving things that we weren't able to do in our garage, that fell on Brunton's shoulders. But we worked really closely with their engineer, who by the way, just kind of need to recognize Hank Iden. Yeah. He's the, the Brunton engineer who's been making Brunton's since 19, I always get the date wrong, 1975? Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, anyway, and he's still he's still there, and so... We've worked we, really closely with him. Yeah, it was an honor to work with Hank on, you know, this product and kind of adding it to the Brunton lineup. We're, we're so in the midst of it, it's hard to kind of stand back and still realize how cool it is that our product is actually, yeah. you know, our, our idea is now part of the Brunton lineup. Um, but anyway, he took a lot of the responsibility, obviously, of of the redesign, making it look like par- part of the Brunton Transit family. Uh, it obviously had all the same innards, but just, you know, the compass face is rotated so that north is parallel to the hinge instead of perpendicular. But otherwise, everything about the innards is pretty similar. But the compass body is what took a lot of work. And that was mostly on Hank's shoulders. We stayed involved to help uh, make sure that the lid protractor, which helps measure plunge angle, uh, just kind of make sure that got drawn. And so it was it was a back and forth process for sure. But so really, it's 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 a Brunton product, but it's also still you know we're still comfortable calling it our product. Today. Yeah, and you know that interaction, that process can go about a million different ways. But this is definitely Lauren's baby, and she has wanted to see this thing you know, finalized and perfected 
and um, everything down to the friction of how it moves and how it feels in your hand and how light it is and every dimension is is you know we're we want this thing to be perfect and if uh, part of the lid protractor is off by a degree or two and you know they've been great to work with we could literally call uh, the production facility up and say wait a minute something's not quite right and they do stop and we figure it out and it and it gets fixed right away and it's been a really great process to uh, to work with them. Wow. And it's a big reason why we uh, moved up here to Lander because we're now we're just 30 minutes away right from Riverton instead of 10 hours. Mm-hmm. So we can just run up there right. and talk to Hank instead of <laughs> trying to communicate over email for, for yeah, it's, it's a lot easier. <laughs> I, I will say one of the things which is this, this is a tiny thing and I don't know you know, it's a small thing in terms of the whole remake of it, but I love that the needle is damped all the time because that's one of the problems with the Bruntons, it seems like, is that students don't take care of them like they should, and those needles always sort of come off their spindles, and I think that's yep. great that it's damped all the time, and you actually have to undampen it to take the measurement. Yep, that's that's totally a Hank innovation that that's came beautiful. out with, with the Geo <laughs> yeah. in, in 2000. But yeah, we love it too. That and needle should really be yeah. on every model of transit yeah. that they make. Yes, yeah, yeah. it yeah. should be. It's yes. a mushroom <laughs> needle. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, that's great. That is yeah. super great. It dampens so um, quickly. I, yeah, it, yeah uh, it was fantastic playing with it. Um, <laughs> also, and we'll link these into the show, you know, you guys have a whole bunch of really great instructional YouTube videos. And <laughs> you were talking earlier about the students using them for measurements you didn't even think of. And those sort of internal angles on these little bitty folds in mm-hmm. these metamorphic rocks, that's awesome because I yeah. would never have thought of that either. Yeah, and conjugate fracture angles and, again, just things that don't have a good surface to measure. Every time I take the axis out in the field, I'm like, oh, it does this so much easier. This, this <laughs> is, yeah, I, I make new discoveries. Yeah, it, it makes measurements that, you know, students have pointed out to us. And it, it, basically every time you walk out in the field, you're like, Wow, I didn't really plan on that, but that's awesome. It does that too. It's <laughs> really been fun. Uh, that's got to be a really great um, ego booster too. You're like, man, I'm way smarter than I thought I was. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, one of, one, yeah, I mean, I one meant of to the do things that. we discovered at AGU was there were a lot of paleomagnetists there, and they got really excited because to measure the core – basically yep. just involves a slightly modified dowel rod now that you put down the siding tube and you have basically the, the full orientation of your core. Um, and so that's a lot easier to measure. Yeah, because the uh, axis so, is... So, so Shannon is dancing right now. You can't yeah. see her. Because yeah. uh, I am a paleomagnetist and I didn't even okay. think of this. Yes, <laughs> and that's right. amazing. We <laughs> are working those, on the dowel rod as we, we speak. We'll oh, sell the dowel rod gosh. for... Some ungodly price. That, no, just kidding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we say, I mean, the orienters that you use to measure PMAG cores, I mean, it doesn't come with a compass. Just the orienter itself, and you have to supply the compass, is like, yep. you know, $800. So yep. that's amazing. So as long well, as yeah, your dowel sh- rod is less than that. Yeah. <laughs> doing these shows has been really great. The scientific community, they're just really open. Um, that's not always the case, but they have been. Um, you know, they, they'll walk right up and watch our demo, see the hole or some part of the axis, and then say, 
oh, good God, it'll work for this or that. Or, <laughs> and you're like, wow, yeah. Pat myself on the back for that. And we'll, you know, exactly. I'll be out in the shop you're if like, you need me. We'll work on that. <laughs> you know, you could well, you easily know. put a laser in the, in the sighting hole and sight in, in a mine at it and, uh, yeah. you know, work with it underground. Yeah. Oh. Well, you know, Lauren, you were talking about charging a, an unreal price for this dowel rod. And years ago at field camp, uh, we made a magnetometer holder just with a piece of PVC pipe and a pile of rocks. And I joked, got a Sharpie, wrote Lehman Geophysical on the side and said, it says geophysical, so I have to charge you 10 times what I bought the parts for. <laughs> and, and here about five years later, uh, Lehman Geophysical is a company. And I mean, you're right. That is <laughs> Geophysics and geology are really driven by these kind of field necess- necessitated innovations. Yeah. when you're out there and you need to see something. It sounds like that's definitely the case with this. Yep. But I, I'm always an electronics guy. I'm thinking, how can I put a microcontroller in this or how can I make it talk Bluetooth? So I have to ask, <laughs> did you ever think about making this digital? That's a question that I actually thought we would get a lot more of at, the, at GSA and AGU. <laughs> but I think people were distracted by demoing and getting to scan their badge for possibly winning a free one. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we have gotten that question quite a bit. And sometimes it's like people are a little dismissive of an analog instrument these days just because they want everything to be digital, which is understandable. But I am pretty old school with my field geology and my teaching of field geology. And I think a lot of other folks are in the same boat that if you're really out in crazy conditions in the middle of nowhere in places where an electronic device if it's your only way of taking your measurements it's just going to be scary to rely on that and so first of all (laughs) just for the, the rigor factor i as a field geologist would never want just a digital device um it also, I think that's definitely that's definitely a viewpoint difference because I, I know a lot of geologists, Shannon included, that yes. really love the analog <laughs> stuff. And then being a geophysicist, I'm like, well, I have three laptops and six car batteries out here anyway. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no. yeah. it just depends if you're working from really remotely or you know out of out of your car or something. But yeah, if you're if you're like on foot out in the middle of nowhere, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to have too much of a tech yeah. dependence. Um, but yeah, I get it. It's a valid question for sure. And I think that like there, also there's a question of accuracy. And I, uh, at GSA, someone walked up to the Brunton booth with his card and said, come look at my poster. And he had done a study of several different apps and the conventional Brunton, uh, both strike and dip. And I hope a lot more people do these studies with all the transits, including the axis and all the different apps that are out there. Cause it was really cool to see his initial findings were that the digital apps that are currently available are actually kind of okay. The inclinometer is okay. Dip was pretty accurate, but strike was sort of all over the place and often a bimodal hmm. distribution. And so hmm. I think until people really study and understand the accuracy of their app, they shouldn't jump to using it or, or, or assume too much about its accuracy. 
Um, and and so accelerometers just... and hardware need to be standardized, or there needs to be a geo-specific phone that is reliable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, right. But yeah, I think it also is just kind of a almost a philosophical standpoint in what kind of tools you want with you and out in the field. And I'll just probably always be old school. But that said, the, the Mr. Fix-It in me, I see no reason why all the moving parts on the axis couldn't be coded. And if the, the uh, internal electronics were shielded from the needle, I, I see no reason why it couldn't upload analog measurements to your iPad in the field. I think that that may be the next step. We'll Maybe. see. <laughs> that, that, that kind of meet in the middle of it's an analog instrument, but it records its digital values. That's, that, that's a slick solution. Yeah. 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 That makes everybody happy. <laughs> yeah. <that could. laughs> and, you know, you do encounter lots of uh, old school field um, geology teachers that want students to literally struggle the way they did but i think those struggles yes <laughs> some of those struggles might be over if they're using the axis but they're still using the earth's magnetic field and they're like lauren said they're visualizing strike and dip and um going analog which is also a happy medium yeah i think part of right. too much technology takes away from understanding perhaps what it is you're measuring and the, the visualization of what you're measuring and the spatial skills involved. But, hmm. yeah. All right, yeah, that's, well. yeah. Well, so I guess that kind of goes to one of our, a uh, couple of our final questions, which were, you know, being that geology is a constantly evolving field, where do you think field geology is going to be in a decade or two? Hmm. <laughs> I guess asking the old school geologist. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think what David just said definitely has merit, and and maybe we're onto something in that if more and more geologists are doing field work with a tablet, you know, wanting to map in GIS out in the field, uh, I can see a lot of benefits to that, uh, and so having a transit like the axis that can perhaps with the click of a button just immediately upload the upload those measurements those accurate measurements into the tablet and those symbols show up on your map right away that that could be really cool i, I see how that could help make professional field work more efficient for sure um i still i guess as an educator i still hope that and I recognize, again, there's value in training your students in currently available technologies. But I would hope that <laughs> in a decade, students are still having to, at least for part of their field education, draw a map by hand. Because there's nothing like having to make the, the connections yourself or draft the symbols yourself to kind of double check for error and, or perhaps introduce it. <laughs> um, but just to really, <laughs> to, to really get what you're doing, I fear that just sometimes we're losing that through the shortcuts that technology can provide. Um, and it's not that I am like those geologists that want their students to suffer just like I did, because I actually enjoyed it. I loved drafting my maps and taking my measurements once I figured out how to do them. Um, and I would, I just hope that we don't lose too much touch with the actual 
art of making a map by just, I guess, always having a computer upload, having the, the data go straight to it, and you push a button, and there's your contacts and your map. I say it all the time to my students. You need to embrace the struggle. If you spend a little bit, if you do it more slowly, <laughs> and you spend a little time struggling, you might just internalize it. And, you know, I'll... I'll see students uh, Google something, um, hunt down information, find the answer in 10 seconds and blurt it out, but not internalize what they said at all. And I, I do think there is merit in processing the data and maybe not spending so much time getting it. But I do hmm. like to teach them to embrace the struggle. <laughs> but I, some of the traditional struggle that they've had for the last 100 years I think that we could do without some of that. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's that, that balance between actual, yeah. you know, progress and... <laughs> well, and, and I agree, you know, we see... I, I deal a lot with software now, scientific software, and you see people sit down to solve a problem that don't... Uh, they haven't thought about the problem. They just sit down at the computer and start typing and think that mm-hmm. the answer is going to come out. And <laughs> that doesn't work so well. Yeah. So you still have to operate the computer with brain engaged Uh, yeah so i definitely see that and so you're you're doing the the business and you're teaching and you're working with brunt and you've got all this going on and when shannon saw you at gsa and i saw you at agu you were completely mobbed the entire time do you get any sleep (laughs) i think dave might not but i do (laughs) (laughs) you get way more sleep than i do kind of going along with so our move to Lander was supposed to just be a year a year leave from our Durango positions because I, I, we both really loved what we were doing in Durango and we loved our schools, um, loved our town, loved, loved our friends, but just had kind of reached a point where we definitely needed, it was wearing on us, it was too much. Um, the last few years of teaching and doing real science innovations plus all of the access and patent stuff and Brunton business was was too much <laughs> so we decided to take the year off and kind of relocate up here to lander um but fortunately and unfortunately we, we fell in love with lander and <laughs> just absolutely you know we had to make the decision to cut ties with our teaching positions actually just really about a month ago and so amazingly dave found a this this teaching position he's in now um north of lander and so right now it's kind of a different we're dealing with a different year than we have in the past you're getting back into the groove of juggling a lot and i'm kind of in a different season where i'm at home running the business dealing with brunton business marketing the axis looking for jobs and i really would love to teach geology again but now we're in a place with only one small community college and they just kind of got rid of their geology program so i'm crossing my fingers that that comes back and (laughs) maybe i can start to play a role there Um, so yeah it's it's been an interesting different year right now (laughs) well so it's completely off the topic but i know just from you know internet stalking you guys uh that rock climbing how important is the rock type when you go rock climbing yes. <laughs> oh it's huge yes. 
another reason why we moved to Lander. <laughs> no, it's super important. We pretty much only climb on Bighorn Dolomite. That's our mm-hmm. our main oh. criteria. Oh, it must God, be Bighorn Dolomite. Dolomite. <laughs> oh, that's no oh, man. It's something I've it's I've so actually pointy. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. So featured. <laughs> I've given presentations on this. I love talking about the geology of climbing. It's a uh... there aren't too many Rillenstein fruits, so it's not razor blades. It's mostly pockets. So. Okay. Oh. Yes. oh, thank goodness. It's not like the tear pants down there near field camp. Yeah, exactly. Where you've got to replace your boots every other year, yep. basically because oh, yeah. of the Fremont Dolomite. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Fremont band is widespread. Um, Lauren's already started. I mean, one of the first things we noticed, of course, was that there really isn't a great map for the climbing. Um, around and so you know Lander is really blessed um, with a great community it's got a vibrant diverse community even though it's sort of in the middle of nowhere and there aren't many people here Um, um, but there are thousands and thousands of uh, routes surrounding town and you can climb here all winter so we'd be lying if you know if we told you we didn't move here for the climbing as well. It's been pretty fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Moving the shop and all the tools, that was not fantastic. (laughs) I I hear you after moving across the country (laughs) in the last Uh, month or so. Yeah, yeah, the geology of climbing would be a good, uh, maybe another episode for for a geocast. That's a Uh, a fun topic. You are a thousand percent right. Yeah. I've already got that written down, so yeah. <laughs> we'll have you back for that one. <laughs> yeah, and actually, before this one runs too horribly long oh, yeah, and we run out of space on our server again, uh, <laughs> we should probably move to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> and With cowbell. <laughs> This is a fun paper that you all picked and sent to us, and I, you put us to shame. This is amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. Uh, sometimes we're never sure if, you know, people kind of get our whole where we're coming from with fun papers, and this one definitely blew it out of the park. But I'll let you go ahead and read the title and author there. The Rise of Mountain Ranges and the Evolution of Humans, A Causal Relation, this is Peter Molnar, and published in the Irish Journal of Earth Sciences in 1990. So the, so the background here is that I went to CU Boulder for grad school, and Peter had recently moved there, migrated there as well, on his own volition. And, well, I think we'll have to ask him. Um, but I took a climate and tectonics class with Peter Molnar in the spring of 2002, it's actually right when we met, and uh, anyway, it, it was a seminar class of just grad students and a few visiting faculty, and each week, Peter would assign three or four papers for us to read, and then that week, in the seminar, he would call on us randomly, without us having known, to summarize <laughs> one of the papers, and so you had to read all the papers. It's actually a great format for doing seminars. And it was good practice for reading papers, too. Uh, so he assigned this one on really the first functional week of the class, <laughs> along with several others that he had also uh. written. And a few, actually, we had like four papers that week. I dug out my old notebook so I can remember all this. Um, oh, wow. so, so, you know, I read the serious papers 
first. I guess I just read them in the order that he had listed them. And then I get to this one. And so, the you know, the premise, you kind of have to know Peter Molnar to get where he's coming from with this. But so, so the premise of this paper is that because in the last, you know, in the last 8 million years, we saw rapid rise of the rapid rise of several mountain ranges around the world. Uh, and he included curves of these uplift rates. <laughs> um, and because in the last 8 million years, we also saw increasing cranial size, brain size in hominids, and he drew curves of those as well, <laughs> that there, there needs to be, a, a, clearly there's a correlation there. And so one clearly caused the other. <laughs> and so he says that human evolution couldn't have caused, you know, bigger, bigger brains and hominids couldn't have caused mountains to grow higher. Therefore, <laughs> mountains growing higher must have caused human brain size to increase. <laughs> clearly because oh, they're inspired by mountainous scenery and the... <laughs> desire to get into high places and climb them that leads to more intelligent humans <laughs> <laughs> there god if you didn't know this was supposed to be funny i think it would it took a while to be like wow because it's so well written and yeah. one of <laughs> yeah and it's in a peer reviewed so journal <laughs> It, right, exactly. Because he says in here, you know, there weren't humans in North America and South America when the Andes and Sierra Nevadas were rising, absolving hominids of responsibility for these high claims. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I like to, you know, you said that, uh, well, obviously, the uh, the humans couldn't have caused the mountains. But he says, well, we have to we have to prove that. So then throws in the Latin, you know, reducto ad absurdum. So reduction by absurdity, that it seems most probable uh, that it went the other way around. Right. This was this was amazing. <laughs> he also points out, I love this as well, because he's talking about how, you know, humans came from Africa, but we obviously don't have all of the data because there's an African bias of the populations of people studying early humans. Right, the sampling oh, yeah. bias. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. So it's, hev- <laughs> it's heavily weighted towards Africa, so we can't be sure. <laughs> like, it's, it's just beautiful. Well, and, yeah, and, and he calls upon this, other studies, and it's, yeah, it's, exactly. it's really well done. <laughs> well, and then there's this extension of, you know, are, are our brains going to continue to grow, and what would happen right. when the brain-to-body mass ratio is one-to-one? Uh, <laughs> and critical it says, time. Uh, yeah, so more seriously, the cranium itself either will be transformed to brain, making boneheads of them all, or will disappear, <laughs> leaving them with soft heads. Uh. <laughs> uh, and then in conclusion, he's like, well, we can counteract this. We are counteracting this, so we may not become boneheads because we're causing all this. We're accelerating erosion yes, by building, the, you know, yep. by deforestation, deforestation and mining. Yeah. <laughs> And ski resorts, he throws that one in there. <laughs> we'll destroy oh, the mountains beautiful. faster they can form and hence diminish the rate of uplift. <laughs> well, and in the in the time correlation section of this, which I, I think we'll be able to find a version of this posted where the PDF people can get to it, hopefully. Uh, yes. So listeners can go read it. But in, in the time correlation section, he says, it may seem strange to talk about cranial size and uplift rates being correlated, 
but you can think of uplift rates as being a volume of rock and cranial size is a volume. And the difference between centimeters cubed and kilometers cubed is merely one of scale, not dimension. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Yep. Uh, yes. It's so beautiful. Yeah. He's taking such, so many stabs at so many different things. And one of them <laughs> that kind of couched in the context of, of the class that he assigned this for was the, the term uplift that everyone uses in different ways to mean different things and talk about different things with different reference uh, reference planes. And so he <laughs> he was able in person to, to um, I think, deal with all the bewildered grad students that walked in after having read this paper. <laughs> and <how laughs> kind of, you know, I think I didn't um, really quite understand that it was a joke. But I do, I, I looked in my notebook from this class and have all these copious notes from the other papers because I was trying to be a good student. And then with this one, I just have three big exclamation points. Like, I don't know what to do with this. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, he does it in the acknowledgments. He acknowledges people, um, and he calls everybody out, geomorphologists, yeah. geochronologists, and paleobotanists for reporting rapid uplift of whatever yes. they've studied, wherever they've worked, with respect to whatever frame of reference seemed appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you did have an interesting point saying that uh, a lot of scientific theories come at somebody's crazy stab at some idea that is completely absurd but had a small grain of truth in it, and we eventually <laughs> picked that out. And yes. it yep. became something yep. real. So why not take a stab at this? Yep. Uh, yep. Oh, man. And it's, yeah, this it's funny because we read a lot of papers that were quite similar. He talks about mountain ranges rising and climate change, which, you know, there's a lot of validity to a lot of this. And he's definitely not saying that couldn't be possible that things are related. But yeah, I just, <laughs> this set the tone for a lot of uh -huh. my grad school experiences. <laughs> Sounds like a I pretty good grad school experience. <laughs> Uh, yeah. yeah, this this was a gem of a fun paper Friday. Oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, this was this this was great. Y'all did a, an excellent job. So, before we let you go, do you have any final thoughts or anything that you wanted to mention that we didn't get a chance to ask you about? Oh gosh, I don't, I don't think so. I'm sure there's something I'll think of later, but. No, we covered a lot. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Thank you for joining us. It's been a blast to have you on the show. You're very welcome. Yeah. Thank you. This was quite an honor. Yeah. If you have an idea for a fun paper that you'd like us to talk about or some feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Don't forget you can use the audio memo feature on your phone and record an audio comment for us and send that in as well. Shannon, how can they do that? Send us those audio comments, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com, or your regular old email comments. That's fine, too. <laughs> um, check us out on our website, don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter, at don'tpanicgeo, at geo underscore Lehman, and at Shannon Doolin. And you can always hang out with us when we're sitting on our computers, which John does more than me, on our swung <laughs> chat room, swung.rocks, on the Don't Panic channel. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.